All right, good morning again, Redemption. I want to welcome you guys. If it's your first time here, my name is Ricardo Stewart, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, just a little bit about Redemption. We're one church, multiple congregations, and so we meet in Gilbert, Gateway, uh, Arcadia, and then this is the Tempe campus. Our normal service hours are 10 a.m., 5 p.m., and 7 p.m. Um, also, we believe that all of life is all for Jesus, and so we agree with Abraham Kuyper's quote that there's not one square inch of this world of which Christ, who alone is sovereign, does not cry out, mine. Therefore, we believe we make disciples that seek to understand that all of life is all for Jesus. So if you're first time here again, I'm glad you're here. If you have any questions about Redemption Church, best thing you could do is take that information card in the seat in front of you, fill out your name, your email address, any questions you have regarding redemption, um, you can drop that off during our time of response uh, in the offering boxes, which are located back by the doors. Um, so for you guys who are here usually for redemption, a few weeks ago, I said that... Um, I would not t- stop talking about redemption communities. Every week I would say, you need to be in a redemption community. For the past four weeks, I haven't said anything about redemption communities. Here's why. Our redemption communities, uh, for the most part, are full. And so here's what we need. Uh, if you are here and you would say you can host a redemption community, if you are here and you're uh, a tender of this church and you would say, maybe I want to go through leadership training, here's what I would tell you to do. Um, Not God, just me, but maybe God. Um, One of the things that you should do is take the information card and write your name, your email address, and say, I'm interested in either hosting a group at my house, uh, because we do have some leaders uh, that have small apartments that can't uh, fit people, uh, and we need people to uh, host, as well as those of you who want to go through leadership training. I highly encourage that you do that so we can continue to multiply leaders. A couple announcements that I have. First announcement that I had is we're starting something that we've never done here in Tempe. We're going to start a high school ministry, uh, which uh, we're excited about. Um, And I think we probably have six high school students in this whole church. And so at first, we'll have probably more leaders than students. But uh, this has been the process for the past uh, 12 months. And mainly, we drive past McClintock and Southern here, and we see a lot of these students getting out of McClintock High School. And we drive past Tempe High School or Marcus and or even some of the, the other campuses around here. There's a school, a public school, that meets here on this campus. Um, and we're, every time they come to bring us students, we're saying, you know, we don't have a specific opportunity to disciple uh, high schoolers. And so we're going to start that soon. And so here's what you need to know. Next Sunday... Following the 10 o'clock service, we will have an informal meeting with Joe Bates. Uh, Joe Bates is a member here. Him and his wife, Victoria, will be heading up uh, the high school ministries. And so if you are a parent of a high school student, um, if you are a high school student, if you want to serve in a high school student, if you're a neighbor of a high school student, you've seen one before, right? We want you to come to this meeting uh, next, next Sunday after the 10 a.m. Uh, service to hear about a little bit of the vision of what high school ministry is going to look like for us. Second announcement that I have is First Wednesdays is starting up again, the first Wednesday of September. Um, if you're not familiar with First Wednesdays, First Wednesdays is something that we do uh, once a month on the first Wednesday of the month uh, to engage theology and culture. So our topic for uh, September is going to be politics, um, which, you know, fun topic, right? And so we're bringing in Jim Skillen, and I can't um, stress to you the importance of Jim Skillen. Um, anyone that writes, anyone that does things that are Christian in D.C., they would say that Jim Skillen is their mentor. He started uh, the Public Center for Justice, which is a Christian think tank. Uh, we were able to get him. Last week, I told you, we were able to leverage the fact that we are one large church. And so uh, I told them we represent a church of 5,000 people, which wasn't a lie. Just in Tempe, we're about a 900, right? So we're able, we're able to get them. And so I talked to the other campuses and said, hey, do we have to invite you guys? Because I really didn't want to have to invite them. Um, and so they're okay with not coming. And so we want as many of you here. We will have food. Um, we will have an opportunity to talk about politics. And here's what we wanted so that you know. 
We didn't want someone who's going to be overly left or overly right. I know some of you are like, dang, right? We're not having that. We want to talk way more of why should Christians engage politics? Um, what, what type of government should there be? Big government, small government. So it's going to be easy, easy conversations. And so I invite all of you guys to be here. And we're going to have a time for a Q&A so you guys can ask Jim all the questions that, uh, that you can get from him. Again, he's a professional at it. Um, we're going to bring him here, let him sweat it out. And uh, we're looking forward to that. So that's the first, September, first Wednesday of September. All right. If you have your Bibles, won't you meet me in Matthew chapter 10? If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. And please keep it raised really, really high for one of the guys can get you a copy of a Bible. Um, if you don't own a Bible, please keep this Bible. That's our gift to you. Um, so that you can have a copy of God's Word. If you are just joining us, we are in week two of our series titled Four G's. Now, you probably looked at that and thought, Four G's, is this, is, this a, is this like a rap CD that we're putting out or something like that? That's not what it is. However, I said this last week, I wanted the title of the series to be Ain't Nothing But a G Thing Baby, but um, I couldn't picture the guys in Gilbert really saying that right, and so we, we, we didn't do that, all right? So, Four G's is a series that we said we wanted to do primarily to put uh, discipleship in your hands. Um, to talk about four characteristics or four attributes of God that when applied to the waters of our life promotes transformation, change, discipleship. So it's counseling to yourself, preaching the gospel to yourself, and it's counseling to the men and women that you are leading around you um, in your RCs, in your workplaces, and in your home. So last week we looked at the first street, G, God is great, and so we don't have to be in control. And then next week we'll look, God is good, and so we don't have to look elsewhere. And then we'll close in the fourth uh, week, uh, God is gracious, and so we don't have to prove ourselves. And then today we'll look at God is glorious, and so we don't have to fear others. This is easily my favorite, G, um, because the, the, the truth is there's not a person in this room who doesn't struggle at some level uh, with human approval the idol of human approval or the fear of rejection. In fact, I've only known one person when talking about this in a small group setting, hey, um, everyone struggles with human approval. And, and this guy said, I never have struggled with human approval. I'm like, yeah, but you struggle with lying, right? So <laughs> before we get into God's word, uh, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 10, just a few verses here. Uh, would you bow your heads with me and let's ask God by the Holy Spirit to bless our time. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of Scripture. We thank you that you reveal yourself to us through creation and the beauty that we see, that you reveal yourself to us through the word that's written so we can understand. And Father, we thank you that you reveal yourself most clearly through your son, Jesus. And so God, we ask right now that you remove um, me, that we may see the cross and that Jesus would be elevated. And as we look at this truth, Father, and we really dig into what is behind or what is underneath um, our fear, God, I pray that you would be able to show yourself to be glorious or to have more weight than any person or circumstance, that we may understand how to preach the good news of Jesus to our lives when we find ourselves struggling with these things. So, Father, we pray that you would have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, growing up or even in your life now, we all have people that we're afraid of. And maybe not afraid they're going to beat us up, but we're just afraid of them, right? It could be a parent that you had. It could be a parent that you have now. Um, it could be a boss, it could be a coworker, um, it could be, could be a wife, um, whoever it is that you are, that you are afraid of, um, that person, um, you, you remember that person. Um, if that person is still around, you try to avoid that person, that person calls, you look at it, and you make sure they're not around looking at you, ignoring their phone call, right? That, there, there's that person. For me as a kid, um, 
the first person I can really, other than my parents, uh, were afraid of was this kid named Chris. In the apartment complex that I grew up in, we had a basketball court, and Chris was like the, the basketball court bully, right? We were in sixth grade. Chris was in ninth grade. Uh, he didn't have any other friends. He's kind of a loser. And so he would play with us as sixth graders. And uh, one of the things that was fun about Chris was he was better than us, so it helped us get better. But the thing that we didn't like was, like I said, he's a bully. And so one day we're playing Horace or something like that, and I start yapping at the mouth, as I always did. And out of nowhere, he just, wham, punches me in the mouth. So I'm on the ground, and I can't be on the ground for too long because my boys are around and everything. So I get up, and I did what any brave sixth grader would have done in that, in that moment. I looked at him, and I ran upstairs and got my sister, Keisha, right? <laughs> See, you laugh, you laugh, but you don't know Keisha, all right? You, you really don't know. See, my sister was a junior in high school at that time. And when I walked in the house and, my, and I was holding him out, she goes, what happened to you? And I'm like, you know, Chris, he just punched me out of nowhere. Did you do anything? Oh, no, I was just playing basketball. And, 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 and sure enough, she walked me downstairs. We went to a department complex. We knocked on the door. His dad answered. His dad's a big, big, big black guy. And, and his, his mom goes, or his, excuse me, my sister goes, is Chris here? And he goes, do you need Chris? She goes, yeah, I need to talk to him. He punched my brother in the mouth. And he goes, all right, Chris, right? Break. <laughs> brings Chris out, puts him there. My, as soon as Chris sees my sister, right? Chris is just this big, bad kid who's older than us. He sees my sister because, see, unlike you guys, he knows Keisha. <laughs> my sister proceeds to say words that I will not even say in this room um, to, to Chris, points him, and essentially just tells him, don't you ever mess with my brother again, but just not in those words, right? In that moment, I had so much confidence. Could Chris still beat me up? Absolutely. Could he beat Keisha up? Absolutely not. Not a chance. And so when we, when we and I, I say that story, as funny as it is, is to um, illustrate a point of God is glorious. We don't have to fear others. And when I, say, when I say glory, when we talk about the word glory, first we have to talk about what the Bible means by glory. We, we see throughout scriptures the word glory being used. We see it a lot in the book of Exodus. In fact, we see glory, um, the, God, the glory of God being shown through the tabernacle, through the temple. We see Moses when he's on top of the mountain talking to God. He comes back down with the Ten Commandments. And the Israelites say, can you put a veil over your face because the glory of God is shining in front of, in front of us. We can't see it. In fact, when Moses knows that he's about to go into the promised land, he knows that he can't be a missional people and we can't be a missional people unless we understand God's glory. And so Moses prays this prayer in Exodus. He says, Lord, show me your glory. There's a sense when the Hebrew word for glory, um, it means weight or heaviness, meaning the glory of God is weightier than every other person or any other circumstance that you can be, you can be involved in. So um, figuratively and literally, my sister had more weight than Chris. And so when I stood before Chris now, before there was a sense where I had a fear of him, a fear. But when Keisha was next to me, I didn't have that anymore. Because she had more weight, she had more power, she had more importance. That's what we mean when we understand the glory of God, when we understand his character and what he's done for us in the work and through the work of Christ Jesus on our behalf, we don't have to fear others. Not that we should not fear others, we don't even have to. That's the freedom of the gospel. And so the text that we're going to go through today in Matthew chapter 10 let me just give you some context. Jesus has just been talking to his disciples about persecution. He's just been talking to them about how he will leave, he will go back to be with the Father, and that there will be men and women who believe in his name who will be persecuted. And, 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 he, and he speaks in, in very clear language to them um, about the importance and about the realness of persecution. 
And at the very heart of what we're looking at today is he tells them not to fear man. Now, we're not talking specifically about persecution, but we're taking this text because it applies to us when it comes to any sort of fear. So read with me in verse 28. It says, And do not fear those who kill the body but but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both body um, and soul in hell. Jesus is very clear here. He, he's not saying, hey, no need to fear people. He goes, no, people can do things. In fact, he says, the worst thing ever that people can do is they can kill you. Like, it's pretty serious. But he says there's even more, though. D- don't just fear man who can kill you, who can take your life away, but fear God who can destroy both the body and the soul. He's saying you're going to fear somebody. G.K. Chesterton is one of the most famous Catholic theologians, says this. You, you have to pick who you're going to fear. We fear God less because we fear others most. One cures the other. And looking at this text, he says, if you want to understand the fear of God so that you would not fear man, understand God's wrath, understand God's power, understand God's holiness, understand his glory. Jesus is speaking clear here, and not just he's saying, he's trying to, it's not a fear tactic, he's not trying to scare people into the kingdom. He's just saying, I have more power. God has more power than any man. He goes on in verse 29 to talking about the care that he has and his sovereignty. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. This is now what Jesus moves from talking about his glory and how his glory is not just to um, make us afraid of him. So often when we think of anything of Jesus talking about God's glory or even God's holiness, we have this inaccurate view of God in heaven walking around with a giant belt waiting for us to do something wrong so he can get after us. That, that when we think about God's holy, we don't, holiness, we don't think about him being near to us. We talked about this last week. We understand the transcendent nature of God, how large he is and how big he is, but we don't understand his eminence and how he cares for us. And so look at sparrows. Sparrows, they were cheap. You can buy them for like a penny. And he says, but you know that he knows them, he cares for them. There's a sense where God is saying, yes, I'm holy, yes, I'm glory, but I, I, I'm glorious, but I'm, I care about you. He says, I love you so much. I even know the hairs on your head. So clearly, God loves you more than he loves me, right? He, he, some of you guys didn't get that about 12 o'clock today. Verse 30, verse 30 says, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you have more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Those last two verses there, Jesus is saying, it's either you're in or you're out. He's saying, here, if if you honor me before men or women or boss or friend or parent or girlfriend or boyfriend, then I will honor you. And I will remember you before my father. But if you deny me before men, if you deny me before your friends, if you deny me before those who you work with, then I will deny you before my father. What Jesus is saying is you're going to fear. Or in other words, you're going to worship something. Because the heart of what we're talking about this morning is the idolatry or the idol of human approval. Um, The Bible talks about it as fear of man. The fear of man that controls us. The fear of man or or whatever it may be, whatever person it may be or group of people that dictates how we live. 
You know, worship in itself is when you give yourself to something, and that something, because a belief in that something, changes your behavior. It changes your action. And all of us, to some degree, at some point in our life, we've done things because of the group that we're a part of or the group that we desire to be a part of, the clothes that we wear, the music that we listen to, the way we walk, the way we talk. It's, no one's original. He was always going to be original. You're not original. We've been around here for a long time. Everything is just coming back over again, right? When I look at some of the music and some of the clothes my parents wore, I'm like, you guys used to wear that too? I thought we started that, right? I, I remember a few years ago when um, I felt like this. When I looked at the 70s, a lot of white guys had long hair. A lot of black guys had afros. And then, like, about the early 2000s, the same thing started happening again. It was like, man, I'm just get a fro, man. You know, I'm trying to be original. Nah, man. Your daddy had a fro, too, right? There's this, there's not a, there's, there, you're not being original. Um, what, there, there's something about people and something about people's thoughts or opinions that, that we want to, we just want to live our life for those things. And the Bible calls it idolatry. We take a good thing and we make it the main thing. It's not wrong for people to like you. It's not wrong to, um, for people to see you as beautiful. If you're single, it's not wrong for you to desire to have a spouse. Um, if you're married, it's not wrong for you to have your spouse still desire you. There, there's nothing wrong with those things. It's not wrong for you to come to work. I mean, some people take this too far and go, oh, yeah, you know what? Yeah, God is glorious, so I don't even care what people think. I mean, I go to work with, with basketball shorts and a wife beater on every day. Okay, you should get fired, Right? There, there, there's a sense where you do, perception is reality. Um, the Bible's not saying that you just don't care what people think. You're just not enslaved to it. In fact, Proverbs chapter um, 29 says this about how we're, we're trapped by Pro- Proverbs 29 verse 25. It says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. When the writer of Proverbs says that, that the, fear, the fear of man leads a snare, it's a trap, meaning it's so easy for, for you and I to just become um, people who are trapped, that we become aware of it. We, we become unaware of it and how much we worship the thoughts of people. In fact, I talked about the, the Hebrew word for glory, but the Greek word for glory um, means opinion, that, that, that someone's got great opinion or an, an important opinion, and that's where we find ourselves. Submitted to the uh, opinion of people, their thoughts of us, um, how they view us, and it cripples us. It really does. It begins to choke us out. And again, every single person in this room, including myself, to some degree, cares what people think. That we spend a lot of time trying to earn people's approval, um, trying to maintain the approval that we do have. We have a fear of rejection um, on, across the board, whether you're old or whether you're, whether you're young. We have it. There's a few things I want to walk through here is when it talks about the fear of man. Um, I had about 20 things that I listed, but I'm only going to do about less than 20, all right? Um, The things that it shows up in our lives. The first thing is insecurity. When we fail to see that God is glorious and we begin to fear others, there's insecurity. And there's nothing that is more um, noticeable in your life um, from others but not you is insecurity. And it shows itself in different ways. Some of us are very insecure, especially, I'm going to start with you, the people who are good at things. Some of you are good at art. Some of you guys are good in business. Some of you guys are good parents. And because you're good at it, you talk about it all the time. And it shows itself in just insecure ways. It doesn't just happen what you're good at. Sometimes insecurity shows itself and you don't understand your identity. And when I say your identity, I'm talking about your identity created in the image of God, redeemed ultimately through the work of Christ. 
that you let everybody else dictate your identity. I was talking to one of, our, uh, one of the guys in the band here. He's a, he's a teacher. And we're talking about he teaches special ed. And he goes, so often with special ed, these kids get labeled at second and third grade that you are this. And for the rest of their life, they work out of that label that was given to them because of a test or because of eight or nine adults that got in a room and said, you're this. And they live that out. So, so many of us are there. Whether it be positive or negative, we let other people label us. When I was in college, there was a good friend of mine who was a biracial kid, half black, half white. And one of the things that used to just get me about this person was when he was around the the white guys on the team, he would act white. Pause. You can't really act a color, just to let you know. Everyone's, yeah, it's black. Black's just a color. All right, back's the message. All right. And so he would would act white. And then when he was around us, he'd go, oh, I want to act black. And I used to always go, hey, man, why, why do you feel like you have to, why do you feel to do that? And it was just me and him talking, and he goes, man, it is so hard because I never know where I fit. Here's a grown man saying it's so hard, I don't know where I fit. And if we were being honest with ourselves, we would say the same thing. We're constantly changing things, changing our hairdos, and there's nothing wrong with that, but, but trying to fit into whatever the group is. There's a great deal of insecurity that comes from that. And again, we all have it. There, there's a sense that we just want to be known or we think that everybody's looking at us. You ever had that experience where you walk into a room and you go, dang, is everybody looking at me? No, right? They're not. They're not. They, they, there's a sense we just want to be known. In fact, it was one of our more famous contemporary poets um, that said this, Sean Carter, a.k.a. Jay-Z, um, said, 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 said this. Uh, in one of his poems, uh, Jay, Jay-Z said that, he doesn't know how it came to this. He said that famous, that's the word, is the worst drug known to man. He said it's stronger than heroin when you can look in the mirror like there I am and still not see what you've become. And he says, I know I'm guilty of it too, but I'm not like some. His whole point is this, this thing called famous, this thing called being known, this thing called fitting in, it doesn't, it, it, yeah, we get it with children, but it, whether you're 60 or 70, it's still there. That we spend so much of our time trying to keep up with the Joneses when the Joneses don't even exist. That there's so much of our effort and energy that goes in trying to say, accept me, Appro- approve me, M- make, make me look good, let me latch onto you as a friend because just by being your friend, I can be cool or I can fit in or I can get the job or I can close the deal. It, it's just not with uh, 20-somethings either. Let me, let me talk a little bit to you older people. Um, some of you are coming to the end of your careers. Some of you are coming to, to, the, to the end of your lives. And you're asking yourself the question, did I make a dent? What's my legacy? Listen, I get the importance of legacies. Biblically, the only thing we're supposed to pass off is the name and fame of Jesus. So we're trying to hold on to our legacy. It reminds me, do you guys know who Willie Loman is? Death of a Salesman? You guys don't read. All right. (laughs) I'm not going to go there. Thanks. Now I know the 5 o'clock and 7 o'clock, just not even going to go there. All right. There, there, there is a, there's a sense where we're holding, we're holding on and we're trying to go, when I go away, I hope they remember. It doesn't matter. When you go away, we hope they remember the legacy that you left about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? The next one, not as insecurity, is gossip. Gossip. When we, we don't see that God is glorious and we're trying to earn people's approval, we're trying to feel good about ourselves, we're even trying to earn the approval of ourselves, we gossip. Guys and girls. This is not just a girl thing. This is a guy thing too. And you do it in certain ways. Man, you heard what what's the name did? Yeah, man, that dude's, man, he's bad. All we're doing in those moments is saying, at least I know somebody's worse than me. 
at least somebody is worse than me. And so we gossip, all of us. This is one of those messages I'm inking out what I'm writing and stuff. I'm going, oh, this is me. Oh, this is me. I I wish I could have just somehow just typed it out and said, read this, because I shouldn't be the one speaking this, because if there's an idol that I have that's bigger than most, it is the idol of human approval. It's constantly something I am battling with, telling myself, God, you are glorious. I don't have to fear man. And so gossip happens. Um, Not only just gossip, the third thing is exaggerated lifestyles. We exaggerate what's going on all the time. We do it spiritually. You're always doing better. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. I'm saved, sanctified, going to glory, right? It's like, man, I just want to, hello, right? There's a sense where we want to be approved spiritually, want to know the most. We want to know the most theology. We want to be seen as good Christians. Um, we, we, we We exaggerate our lives. How are your kids doing? They're doing, oh, man. When it comes to kids, we find some of us, our insecurity comes through our children, whether they're young or whether they're out of the house. Um, I, I hate to do this, but Jason Raber is one of our pastors here. His oldest son, Micah, is a genius. Now, I'm not putting a label on him, but he can read really well. Um, Jason's reading novels to him. He's four. And so I'm going home to Noah like, come on, man, we got to, you know what's happening at the Raber house. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, we got to get it right, right? And so, and, and there's just that sense there. Like, why am I, Noah's looking at me like, dad who's the ravers? <laughs> you know, and so there's a, there's a sense that we find it, we find our identity in our kids. Sometimes we give ourselves too much credit because of what they've done good, and then sometimes we give ourselves uh, too much credit for what they've done bad. Uh, there's a thought when the Bible teaches that train a child in the way that he should go, um, the thought is that they become Christian. That's not what the Bible teaches. Um, you can train your children, you can preach the gospel to your, your children, and they may not grow up to be Christians. Um, my mom did a phenomenal job as best as she could at, at introducing me to Jesus, and I had the, the stiff arm up the whole time, and it wasn't until later that God brought me to himself. We have to understand that. But when we exaggerate our lives and say business is going far better than what it really is, and my life is really good, we come in, we look good on Sundays, life is great, um, it's not always that great. In fact, there was a story on ABC about Facebook. I don't know if you guys saw this. And it was uh, talking about how moms and girls um, were, were being more depressed. They were becoming more depressed by w- looking at Facebook. And here's why. It's because they were looking at the stories of their friends and, like, man, they got better lives than I do. Because we put good stuff on Facebook, don't we? Oh, look at me with my kids, right? Look at me. And I do it too. Look at me and my wife. You don't put like, just got in a fight with my wife. <laughs> She's thinking about leaving me, right? We don't put that out there. Right? And so it was saying in this, in this story that, that people were looking at this and they were being uh, depressed because we over-exaggerate ourselves. We just want to go, wow, that looks good to be in that household. And the other thing is not exaggeration, but lies. Um, just flat-out lies. You, you ever find yourself just lying over something very, very, very small? Very, very, very small. Um, no. You find yourself lying over something very, very small. Why do you do that at that moment? In that moment, what you're saying is, um, what, through your actions, the approval of that person is far more better than the approval of God. I'm willing to disobey God, who is glorious, who's done all that he could in the work and through the work of Jesus Christ for the approval of this person. We do it all the time. One of my biggest issues uh, is getting home on time. I shared this to you before. I'm, one of these days, I'm going to get good at this. And, and my wife would say, hey, are you coming home? Yeah, I'll be home in 10 minutes. And then we'll get to talking about something really important, what the Raiders did, um, how Dwight Howard's going to the Lakers, and, uh, and like just, just something really, really, you know, theologically important. And then she'll call and say, what was it? Oh, um, man, you know what? I'm, I'm in the car. I'm on the way home. Because I want to lie. I'm in the office. I'm on the way home. It's a lie. Why do I lie? Because I, I don't want my wife to think of me as a bad person. I don't want my wife to think of me as a liar. So I lie. 
doesn't make any sense, right? <laughs> but we do that in small ways and big ways, that we're, we're liars. And when we, every time we lie, it's because the glory of man is more important to us than the glory of God. The opinion of others is more important to us than the opinion of God. And, and we do it all the time. Not only do we lie, um, we become workaholics. Workaholics. Um, when I say workaholics, it doesn't mean that you even have to be good at what you do, but you're just constantly working. We talked about this a few weeks ago, how we just never shut it off. You go to bed, it's still in your mind. You wake up, first thing you do, you check your emails, you check your Facebook. You want to make sure something's going. You, wanna, you just don't want to be seen as someone who's lazy. You want to constantly be working. You just, you just want, you know, I want my boss to understand. My wife needs to know I'm providing or, or, or I, need to, I need to make money. I know I go to school, but I, I need to work. I need to work. And you know what? You just need to get home. We're, we're, I sent something out to the uh, redemption community leaders, and my wife were looking through. It was six steps for a healthy marriage, and one of them was hurry home. And it was very convicting to me because, I, like I just said, part of me just wants to work because I don't want to be seen as someone who's lazy. Here's the thing. Did you get that? I don't want to be seen as someone who's lazy. It goes back again to what you think about me and what I think about you dictates what we will do. And we're all to some degree there. We, we try to overachieve. Some of us, on the flip side, not that we're lazy, but some of us don't do what God's called us to do out of fear of failure. There are so many people, especially young people, or even older people that say, oh, if I can go back and be 28 again, I would have done this. But because of fear of failure, we don't do it. We don't do it to something very small. There's a girl that you want to ask her, and you're like, oh, she might say no. Here, let me just tell you this. All right, I know some of you guys, most of you guys are single. Just ask her. If she says no, nothing changed. You didn't have her before anyway. Just practical wisdom right there, right? So something, something, something that small to starting a company or um, to having another child or adopting a child or whatever it may be, the fear of failure cripples you because of what other people would think about you. And so some of us don't take risks and things, and so we, we just sit there. We, we're very, very, very comfortable. And yet the gospel is never about being comfortable. Um, my good friend Josiah used to always tell me, if you're going to be a Christian, you got to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Because the only way that you see change, the only way you see growth, is if you are be, you're, you're able to be comfortable being uncomfortable, because that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus, when he's talking in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, does not say, hey, be comfortable. He says, no, 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 don't fear man, even though he can kill you, but fear the one who can destroy both the body and the soul. Those are not like, all right, Noah, go to bed, right? Those are serious words. Those are not, they're not words that we just read to go to bed. But because we're crippled by people's thoughts, we find ourselves living that way. And another thing that we do relationally is, um, is we, were, we will naturally, because of the fear of man, we will naturally um, hose the people who we love the most in order to win the approval of others. That some of us will naturally say, I've already had the approval of these good friends. I already have the approval of... Um, this coworker, or th- my spouse, or whoever it may be, and so I will, I will um, diss them in order to win the approval of others, and they feel it. They feel it, and if you're a person like that, you have to know that's because it has nothing to do with the people. It has everything to do with your heart. You have an over-desire. Those are good things. I'm not saying that it's sin for people to like you. I'm saying it becomes sin when you elevate it over an understanding of God and others. Jesus told us to love God and to love our neighbor. And the way that we love God and we love our neighbor is in loving God more, we begin to serve our neighbor. We don't begin to choke out and have to have needs from our neighbor to feed into the gap that we have in our lives because we so desperately want to be accepted, so desperately want to be approved. We have an incredible fear of being rejected. 
couple more things we have here. Um, one is um, evangelism. That the fear of man is the reason why we don't tell people about Jesus. It is really easy for us. It's, really, it's easy for me. You guys came to church. You guys know I'm going to open up the Bible. This is easy. Well, it's easy to go, here's Jesus. It's hard when I'm in the street. It's hard when I'm at the basketball court. It's hard when I'm in the gym to make relationships with people who don't know Jesus and go, okay, I know I have a good relationship with you, but I want to talk to you about this person that I know, and his name is Jesus. I mean, I'm, this is not Pastor Gilt, but just ask yourself the question, when's the last time you told someone who didn't know Jesus about your relationship with Christ? And yet, th- that, if it's true that Jesus is the most important person to those of us in this room who would call ourselves Christians, how could we not talk about him? And so often it comes down to, I don't want them to think that I'm weird. I don't want them to think that I'm preachy. I don't want them to think that I'm churchy. I don't, and then pretty, pretty soon, you don't want them to know Jesus. Out of your fear, you were holding back something from them. My good friend Josh, who was the only Christian friend that I had growing up, um, was, would love Jesus, um, would n- never ever talk to me directly about Christ. When I became a Christian in college, and he was so excited, and he was like, oh, I can't wait to come out there and see you. And when he came out, I said, man, I'm, how come you never told me about this? This is good news. And he's like, man, growing up, man, you were like, no one could tell you anything, man. It was like, it was like ah, and then besides, I didn't want to, you know, jack up the relationship. I looked him dead in his eyes. I said, are you willing to, you are willing to allow my soul, as Jesus said, to be destroyed instead of to tell me about how I could be saved? Who's that about? Is it about the relationship or is it about you? That, 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 that's what it comes down to. Again and again, we see that this, this, this desire for human approval, it can go on and on. It's relationships. So often I see some of you guys in relationship with girls that you should not be in a relationship with. But, but you have that feeling, well, we've already been together. No, it's okay. You're not married to her and you're not married to him. If, if this person is not, if, if you find yourself denying your God by being with this person, there's certain actions you find yourself in, you're denying God, you're, you're saying this person's weight, this person's glory is more effective and more beautiful than God, then, then fine, go ahead with it. Jesus says, you, if you want to do that, what you're doing with your actions is you're saying, God, I'm denying you before man. In a, in a relationship, if it's you at work, if you find yourself at work doing things that you know are against Scripture, that you know are just the opposite of what God will call you to do, but you need to do it in order to save your job, Jesus is saying, you may not verbally say, I deny Jesus, but with your actions, you're saying, no, God, I need this job. God, I need this money. You won't provide. This, this particular employer is more important than me than your weight. All, all of us do it. At some degree, we do. That, that we find ourselves denying Jesus over and over and over again because of the fear of others. And just read Jesus' words again. And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and hell. Soul and body and hell. God is glorious. You don't have to fear others. How do we get to the point where we can understand in the moment of fear in the moment of looking for approval, how can the, the fear of God trump the fear of man? One, we got to look to God in awe. But when I said before that, that in the Old Testament, the word glory meant weight. Um, it, it meant that there was, there's a weightiness that we have to come encounter with this holy God. To paraphrase Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah, who's a prophet, comes into the temple. 
He had no idea what was going to happen to him that day. When he walked into the temple, it says that he saw the, the seraphims. They were flying around. They were covering their, their face, and they were singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And when Isaiah sees this, and Isaiah is an important man. Isaiah is a man of words. He's, he comes from a high, uh, affluential family. He, he's a known man. He's a prophet. And when he comes into the presence of God and he understands God's glory, here's what he says, woe to me, I'm undone. And for a prophet to pronounce woe, that was judgment. He was saying, woe to me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. What happens when you have an encounter with God and you understand the glory of God is you begin to see your sin for what it is. You begin to see yourself for what it is. And Isaiah goes, I'm done. I'm done. When you acknowledge that you've been denying God by your actions, you say, I'm done. Because his word is very clear that he will now deny me before the Father because I feared, man, I didn't see that he was glorious. Then Isaiah, it says the seraphims came and it had a tongue of fire and it came and it touched his lips and he says, your sin has been atoned for. There was a sense where he acknowledged his sin when he came in the presence of God's glory and then God was able to forgive him. That's grace, God's undeserved gift. When we understand God's glory, not just in the transcendent sense, but how big he is and we acknowledge our sin, and we understand his means of grace for us by giving his son Jesus, now we're able to say and believe God is glorious. I don't have to fear others. Amen? Because the reality is when Jesus says, again, don't fear the one who can kill the body, let's just be honest, rejection, rejection hurts. They, taught it, they teach us when we're kids, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words never hurt. That's a lie. That's a lie because words do hurt. When someone walks out on you, it does hurt. It, it, it's a bad thing to fail. It, it, it's destructive. Um, it, it is bad to be fired from a job. It is bad to have someone walk out on you. All of those things, Jesus is not saying those things aren't real. No, would you weep? Would you cry? Absolutely. It comes down to um, what the gospel teaches us. There is a sense of fear of rejection. And what Jesus is teaching here is the fear of rejection is ultimately to one day to be rejected by God. Because see, our friends can reject us, girlfriends, our boyfriends, our jobs, our, our family, even our spouses can reject us. And it, as, as bad as that is, it's not nearly as bad to be rejected by a holy God. And so when we stand before God's presence, not only do we have to have an awe of God, what Isaiah had, we have to have an understanding of what he thinks of us. Because most of our life, we are going around hearing what we think of ourselves, what our mind thinks of ourselves, what other things of ourselves, and it goes ups and up and down because it's dependent upon your behavior. If you're doing really, really well, people will say you're doing good. If you're not doing well, like, man, that guy's really bad, that girl's really bad. And so it's dependent upon other people that can change depending upon how good you are and your behavior. And yet what we see in the gospel is not only does the gospel give us awe, but the gospel also teaches what God says. Here's what I mean. In the Greek, we said that glory meant opinion or importance. So whatever it is that God has to say is more important than what anybody else has to say about you. Whatever label it is that God slaps on his children is far more bigger than any label that I can or anybody else around you can slap on you. And this is what God says. Through the gospel, what we see is we spend so much time, so much energy, so much effort trying to earn, trying to sustain, trying to maintain the approval of others and try not to lose their approval. And yet, what we learn from the Bible is God spends even more time. In fact, the Bible lets us know even before the ages begin that he had a plan to spend more time, more energy, and more effort 
in the work and through the work of his son Jesus dying on the cross for us so that God, we would be able to be acceptable in God's eyes. The gospel lets us know that there's nothing we can do to be accepted before God. And so the fear of rejection is real. And yet God did everything he can and finished it and completed in the work of his son Jesus Christ. Amen? Every single person to some degree longs to be accepted, to be loved unconditionally. Your parents can't do that for you. Your sport can't do that for you. Your art can't do that for you. Your beauty can't do that for you. I can't do that for you. At some point, we will fail you. The gospel lets us know that God himself says he will never fail us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. And we failed him, as we always say, he died on the cross for us. Amen? Whatever it is that you fear, or whoever it is that you fear, you have to believe the gospel that I already have the approval that really matters. Imagine, just imagine for yourself, what would your life look like if you understood your identity in Christ? If you understood that the gospel says that when God looks down at you, he doesn't see your failures, he doesn't see your highs and your lows, but he looks at Jesus, and he looks at his righteous life, and he accepts you, not because of you. He accepts you because of what Christ has done on your behalf. What would your life look like? You'd probably be a better employer and a better employee. Not because, you, not because you'd just be better. I mean, you would just, you know, you don't get better ability by just being a Christian, but you wouldn't be afraid. You, you probably would be better just for the fact that you wouldn't be doing things out of fear. Well, one of the girls in our RC, we were having this conversation about what would it look like if we really got the gospel and what God thought of us. She said this. She's an artist. She goes, I would make more art. I'd be a better artist. And I said, what do you mean by that? She goes, well, because I'm so good at this art, um, um, I don't try the other arts that I want to try. Because I'm good at this, and people know that I'm good at that, but if I didn't care what people thought, I would try this. Not because I'd be good at it, but the reason why I don't try it is because I don't want to be seen as bad in this area because I'm already good in this area. And I thought, oh my gosh, I could be an artist, right? No. <laughs> That, that's, the same, that's the truth about everything else that we do. I mean, just imagine what it would look like if believers in Jesus Christ understood that their confidence was not in what they did, but their confidence was fully in what Christ did. That's what we mean when we say God is glorious. We don't have to fear others. Amen? Let's pray.